Welcome to the Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast. I'm joined today by Emmanuel Kakaras, the EVP for Energy Transition at MHI, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. Welcome, Emmanuel. Hello, Tim. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Good to have you here. So let, let's start off very briefly. I wanted to ask um, uh, an easy question for you, but it's uh, one of interest for me. Um, how many people are now working on energy transition for MHI across the world? If you only look at uh, our US business, we have uh, hundreds of people now just in the US. We have equally hundreds of people in, in Japan, and we are closely to 60 people in, in Europe. And um, I think in 2019, for example, uh, there were, uh, I don't know, 20 of us uh, oh, wow. uh, all around MHI. Well, you're, um, you're focused on different solutions for local markets. So does that mean different decarbonization approaches in, for example, Europe, the US and Asia? The portfolio of technologies is very much uh, the same, but mm. uh, I think that uh, the priority locally is uh, are different. We have the the opportunity to test different technologies in different regions. This is determined from the priorities or the local conditions. One simple example: uh, if we are talking on the Middle East and North Africa, we have the ample uh, potential of renewable electricity. So. Obviously, producing green hydrogen, for example, is an obvious solution over there. Mm. Uh, in other areas, you have the, the possibilities to store CO2. Canada, uh, the Gulf in the, in the US, the, the Norway in, uh, in Europe. So we move to the carbon capture technologies uh, as a component on the uh, carbon utilization and storage in regions where you have the potential to store CO2 and so on and so on. But the portfolio of technology from our supply side, technology supply side, is uh, more or less given. It's the green uh, hydrogen with electrolyzers and the full uh, value chain of hydrogen from production, transport and utilization. It is the green and blue hydrogen from decarbonized uh, natural gas or even turkeys if uh, we are moving on, on the py pyrolysis out of natural gas. And then it's the carbon capture, mm. compression, transport, liquefaction, transport, and to a certain extent, uh, reuse. So along these two pillars, uh, which are obviously complemented by the energy efficiency measures and the promotion of different electrification technology like the heat pumps. This gives us a, a coherent portfolio of technologies. And depending on the local priorities, the, our partners can adapt their strategy and we are there to support them. I'm glad you brought that up actually. So before talking about hydrogen, how much more room is there for decarbonization just by lowering carbon intensity of existing processes or increasing fuel efficiency? Is there a lot of room left there um, to play with? And does that differ by region? I would I would assume that somewhere like Europe's pretty efficient, both on for fuel and for carbon intensity at the moment. But does it differ in different areas? Tim, thank you very much for asking this question, because we, we tend to forget the, the obvious, and the obvious in decarbonization 
is uh, the zero cost measures, the negawatts as we call it. That means the the efficiency increase measures or the fuel switch measures, which are the low hanging fruits for this exercise. And uh, for that, I see uh, still a huge potential in countries uh, where they are still relying on coal, for example. Mm. Uh, we see uh, uh, the most efficient uh, gas turbines introduction are, are around the world as a measure to immediately decrease the carbon footprint, even if we don't move from one day to another to a complete uh, zero carbon uh, power structure and so on. And then another quite interesting uh, aspect on, on the same topic is the increase on electrification. That means uh, finding more ways to electrify the, uh, the end use um, energy utilization, like the, the heat pumps being another very good example. I know that everybody is talking about electromobility anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's a thank you for answering that. I mean, it's just a quick one. I suppose we've seen some examples of that recently. We thought um, we've probably seen the last of the unabated um, steam methane reformation plants, but they do make sense uh, from a carbon intensity viewpoint when you're switching from coal gasification, for example, on an unabated basis. Well, MHI sells enabling solutions to customers, and from the customer's viewpoint, a stable environment is really key for companies to make long-term decisions around energy pro projects and so forth. There's been a lot of change on policy, so does that, does that environment provide a stable backdrop, or have the last 10 months been unsettling rather than settling for your customers? Yeah, we've seen... Um... Two things in the last 10 months. Of course, we have seen the, the, this roller coaster on energy prices uh, that uh, definitely affected, uh, for example, energy intensive industries and it affected their appetite to move to decarbonization. On the other hand, we have seen the return to, dom to domestic energy supply patterns. Uh, but what we have not witnessed is a loss of appetite on decarbonization. In fact, for certain aspects of, of the energy, for national energy strategies, we have seen the domestic renewable energy production as a mean to secure uh, the uh, energy supply and being less dependent, for example, in imported energy. So that is uh, what we are seeing at the national policy making. On the other hand, uh, we have witnessed two game changers, one in the US. Uh, I think uh, the decision and the policy put together in IRA is a game changer because yep. it is simple, uh, business oriented, and uh, uh, it leaves the decision to the, of technology to the business and the and enabler is the state. So that's a very uh, clear set of rules that uh, enable long-term planning. On the other hand, we have seen the Fit for 55 and the Repower EU, uh, which is an equally powerful uh, package in terms of monetary power. So the EU has mobilized lots of resources uh, on the occasion of the post-pandemic era and of the uh, recent crisis. So there was firepower available. Uh, and we are witnessing now some uh, major improvement, for example, with these delegated acts 
in the in the fit for 55, the, the Green Deal on the EU, that uh, uh, we expect that they will make the decisions uh, quite easier for the uh, investors, and we will hear more FIDs in the in the years to come. Yeah, it's going to be. A, I think this will be a big year for FIDs. I suppose one of the things is though that it's getting a little bit confusing. There's such a patchwork of different offerings in different uh, geographies. Um, I think that the IRA Act has, has set the tempo, uh, and I, th- I would guess that a lot of other jurisdictions are going to sit there and say we don't have to match that, but we have to reduce the delta <laughs> to it um, so that we remain attractive. Um, so it's not necessarily matching that we'll see, but uh, but closing the gap. So I want to talk about CCS briefly, uh, and the IEA cites the technology as as essential to being able to hit Paris Agreement targets. What is uh, MHI offering in this field? Thank you for asking that, because you know uh, MHI is very well known in the market for the market leadership on the CCS, and uh, obviously uh, we have uh, something like seventy percent of the market because uh, we have been in this technology of carbon capture from an early stage uh, since the 90s, I would say, and uh, that allows us to build up at scale. So we uh, we are now in a position to deliver the biggest plant in the market. On the, and uh, on top of that, we have, uh, I would say, a leadership also on the solvents and uh, on the efficiency of carbon capture as uh, today's state of the art. But uh, uh, just having the technology is not enough. You have to have uh, the uh, policy to, at the end of the day, to store CO2 because capturing CO2 at the range that it is needed to achieve decarbonization will re- always require a, a solid and sound uh, long-term CO2 storage policy. And yep. that's, uh, that comes with a uh, with the premiums, with the uh, 45Qs, and all that, w- what uh, is uh, have been uh, pivotal in the in the US. But uh, last but not least, we see other countries and other regions of the world uh, equally coming with ambitious targets now in terms of long-term uh, carbon storage. We have seen announcements in Saudi Arabia and the Emirates. Uh, we've seen announcements in Europe as well. Uh, so in uh, there are markets in Europe, like in the Netherlands or the UK or Norway, above all, uh, that are accelerating in the sense of uh, uh, having uh, CO2 storage as part of their portfolio. And that will deliver uh, an uh, accelerating or avalanche effect in the, in the CO2 capture projects. And uh, that uh, will uh, allow especially the hard to abate industries like the cement, the steel and so on, Mm. the steel industry to deliver uh, uh, tangible solutions for decarbonization. It's interesting you bring up steel and cement. So obviously steel, um, you can see hydrogen used directly uh, in the process as that's a kind of fuel switching. Partial decarbonization, because even in the DRI team, in the mm. DRI case, you will need some biogenic carbon as well, or yeah. you can have partial uh, uh, partial DRI with a mixture of natural gas and hydrogen, and yeah. then you will always need an end of pipe uh, carbon capture 
to achieve the full uh, decarbonization. So the hydrogen and CCS for me are not mutually exclusive technologies, mm. quite the opposite, I have to say. And then with something like uh, an industry like cement, would that are, are, is, is CCS being looked at there as a sort of post-combustion capture of hydrocarbon use rather than anything else? Or, or are they considering using hydrogen as well? There, there is a mixture of uh, technologies in order to tailor-made the perfect solution uh, for the, each industry. For example, in the cement industry, you have a very good usage of high oxygen as well. Yes. So you can have pre-combustion capture or oxifiering or a combination, and that's something new that we are bringing into the market, a combination of oxifiering as a, a consumption of, high, of oxygen from the electrolyzers with a post-CO2 capture uh, uh, as an end of pipe. So the, uh, there will be a combination of the two, and especially on the cement industry, as they move more and more into the uh, non-CO2 intensive fuels, the renewable fuels, the waste, the RDFs, the biomass, uh, yep. they will uh, become a very interesting source of, uh, I would say, high-grade biogenic CO2 that could be very much of interest if you wish to produce renewable fuels by synthesis at the end. So I will I see a switch in the cement industry in favor of the post-combustion CO2 capture. Yep. And that will come with some uh, targeted oxygen use in the kiln itself. It's going to get quite interesting over the next couple of years as people make their allocations for type of fuel because as you say for things like um let's say e-fuels e-methanol e-saf there is a very limited pool of biogenic co2 um <laughs> available exactly exactly that's uh, that's the point and although it is very attractive to to imagine that you capture all this co2 from the air i tend to say that we have to exhaust the 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 surface the ground sources of biogenic CO2 first, right? Well, you have to because it's uh, it's going to be the cheapest source, surely. Yeah, yep. <laughs> absolutely. So, Manuel, obviously, there still remains plenty of skepticism around um, CO2, not necessarily capture, but storage. Plenty of examples exist where it has failed to hit expected rates. Uh, with a leading market share, can you offer some examples where CCS rates have been met for storage? First of all, the, the storage part of the business is also, uh, it's not only a, qu a question of our partners, it's also a question of uh, uh, national authorities coming hand in hand and offering the ultimate guarantees or the counter insurance and all the mm. stuff and different. Uh, and I think uh, all of us uh, are building uh, upon the experience of uh, the Norwegians who have done an excellent job all over the last 20 years or more, starting from mm. small quantities in Sleipner, delivering all the data uh, uh, in the seismicity, on the, on, the, on the tightness, on the control of the, uh, of the store CO2. Uh, I think they have done a, a, a tremendous job over, uh, over the last years and give the world with sufficient evidence. We have similar evidences in Canada. So the world can build on success stories in the storage part, even in the projects that have been uh, abandoned 
it, it di they didn't fail because of the storage part. They failed because of the cost and Economics. the business case and the capex and the maturity of the technology. And in some cases, because of the lack of a business case, if uh, the CO2 was to be used on EOR. So I'm confident that uh, um, carbon storage uh, will be a, an important part of the decarbonization uh, story. And uh, we see uh, the willingness now of, uh, I mentioned already the, the, the Saudis and the Emirates, for example, to, yep. to be uh, quite active in, in this field and offer the infrastructure for storage to, to, to themselves, first of all, to their own industries, but also to third parties. Yeah. So outside of Norway, then, um, those initial projects that we see coming through, I guess, are going to be a critical for establishing real-world viability uh, in different jurisdictions. I'm, I'm going to switch now to turquoise hydrogen biolysis. Oh, that's you've my favourite. You've invested in a number of companies uh, that are involved in this. It's not because of that that it is my favourite. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do, yeah. do you find these to be for industrial-scale commercialisation at this point? How close yeah. is that? Yeah. Let's start for the, from the reasoning, and the reasoning on Turkey's hydrogen is on the discussion we just had. Uh, the byproduct being carbon black, mm. in whatever forms, even in a poor crystallic form, it's much easy to even to dispose if you compare it with CO2. Yeah. So there is a, 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 a powerful driver on on the byproduct side, right? That's yep. number one. Number two, uh, there will be natural gas available uh, for the next uh, years to come, and nobody doubts about that. There are huge deposits that are reaching now, uh, commercial deployment and so on. So gas will be there as well. Yep. So uh, uh, then if we manage to have a kind of breakthrough technology on the pyrolysis itself, as opposite, as compared to the steam reforming and subsequent CCS, mm. then we have a business case. And what is the game changer there? The game changer is the, the kind of uh, pyrolytic technologies, whether this will be plasma assisted or thermochemical or advanced catalytic, this is the game changer that could uh, make the difference in favor of the turkeys uh, opposite to you know uh, the the green or the blue and, and whatsoever and if we have uh, uh, for example competitive plasma technologies and uh, there is and I'm in a position to know that there is a huge comeback in plasma technologies as electricity is becoming cheaper and cheaper yep. uh, due to renewable then if i have competitively priced uh, electricity, I can uh, use it in the form of plasma instead of electrolysis. So, yes. so, so there are, there is, a, and the explanation why turquoise is my favorite is very simple. From a pure scientific point of view, you have so many drivers uh, which are in line with the basic thermodynamics, the basic, you know, activation energy uh, uh, in the different. Um, levels to to achieve the dissociation of 
of uh, methane, for example, yep. that are very close uh, uh, as a game changer from a scientific point of view. So uh, in this um, affi uh, affinity to, towards Turkey, it's the science, the scientist that speaks more louder than the, <laughs> you know, the industrial executive or the businessman. Well, I suppose when I look at turquoise hydrogen, the reason I look at it quite carefully is because it, it could be a carrier killer in terms of, you know, do you need to liquefy your hydrogen? Do you need to turn it into ammonia or methanol or you or put it into a, sorry, I should say a liquid organic absolutely. hydrogen carrier. And so that absolutely. changes the economics entirely. Yeah, but absolutely. And it builds upon the current infrastructure of the, you know, moving uh, methane uh, LNG around the globe. It's an yes. established practice. And uh, as I told you, the, the, the disposal part uh, of the carbon is much easier yes. than uh, uh, in terms of volumes, I mean, and sizes associated and handling and, and, and so on. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's quite attractive. I am op I'm, I'm very optimistic on, on modern technologies, on the, on, the, um, uh, on the cracking, on the paralytic dissociation of, of, of methane and so on. So with a crystal ball in hand, how far do you think we are from commercialization of the technology in one form or another? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, um, I've listened to a talk last year in the Florence School of, uh, of Governance. Mm. Uh, and uh, the experts over there were fairly enthusiastic. So I would, uh, I would say that um, um, Turkey's is the topic of the next decade. As we are witnessing, you know, we, we, we all say that the massive rollout of the hydrogen technologies from electrolysis and, you know, all the infrastructure business associated with that mm. is by the end of this decade. So the 30s will be uh, the, the, the kick uh, kickstart of uh, hydrogen utilization business. And then I would say that in, uh, in the mid 30s, we will have uh, the next generation of decarbonized natural gas supply, as I, I like to call uh, <laughs> Turkey's, Turkey's hydrogen by that name. Yeah. I think mid-30s, we will see uh, more, uh, more and more of that. Okay. Uh, and, you know, technology and science has not said uh, its last word in terms of the plasma and uh, the plasma technologies yet. Okay. So what about um, turbines? You're, you're producing both hydrogen and ammonia turbines. H how much work is required to alter turbines to work on these different inputs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, first of all, I mean, uh, um, the ammonia firing comes from the necessity to have a, a, um, a sizable and uh, realistic carrier uh, for overseas transport of hydrogen because simply the compression and the liquefaction are very expensive. So that uh, lots of us, uh, and I think almost everybody now has agreed that ammonia is the most competitive way to transport um, uh, hydrogen over large distances with sea carriers and so on. That means that uh, uh, if you receive carbon-free ammonia in the consumption side, you mm -hmm. either crack ammonia again and produce hydrogen and then you utilize hydrogen but you uh, you should try your best 
to utilize uh, ammonia as such and okay direct use we, yeah we use fertilizers okay there is a considerable process progress on using ammonia for uh, for shipping we we will see some game changing uh, technologies in terms of engine combustion over there and we are doing our part of the job in uh, in uh, what we call smaller size gas turbines the, the industrial size gas turbines mm -hmm. where because you have relatively low firing temperatures around 1200 1250 degrees you can still uh, control some the additional NOx emission that comes from the bound nitrogen into ammonia, what we call fuel NOx, and control that uh, um, after that with a catalytic uh, reduction technology. Uh, yeah. Obviously, uh, if you have applications where uh, in, uh, you have a much higher combustor temperature, like we have in the heavy-duty gas turbines where we are at 700, 1700 degrees centigrade, you cannot control NOx that well. So in the uh, in that type of application, you we are going exclusively with hydrogen and we are uh, making good progress over there as uh, we have reported in multiple you know press releases the last couple of years. So yeah. hydrogen either with or without pre-cracking, depending on where you can source your hydrogen, uh, is the um, large frame use uh, and um, the, 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 the heavy duty gas turbine use. And uh, for the small, there are there is a niche of use of uh, ammonia. If I'm thinking for decentralized small in, uh, applications, islands, uh, industrial parks, mm. there will be always, you know, vicinity to ammonia terminals and ammonia handling stations. There will be a use for small uh, industrial scale uh, turbines. So it's uh, worth the effort to develop a technology uh, with a fuel which is, uh, you know, complex and demanding per se. And is there a sort of average demand or interest level for these? I mean, do people tend to look towards 70-30 mixes or or 100% um, compatibility with, say, ammonia? Because the reason I ask is, of course, that, that people are looking at it often in a mix in the early years. Yep. Uh, in our case, uh, and the, from a global perspective, the mixing of ammonia will come rather to the coal uh, boilers and stuff. Mm. Rather, uh, rather than to the gas turbines with with gas, yes. it means we have uh, we are experiencing uh, considerable reference and requirements in Japan uh, uh, for uh, carbon plants for coal plants to be su gradually substitute thirty percent, or uh, we are ready to move to fifty percent substitution by green ammonia, yes. thus reducing the footprint of existing assets. A recent announcement, not only in uh, in Japan but in other uh, in other southeastern uh, European countries, Taiwan also. Uh, yeah. So we we are moving there on the on the on the blending. There will be blending on hydrogen and natural gas for the simple reason that we don't have enough hydrogen for the power sector in the years to come. And uh, the ammonia is a niche, as I told you, that will come as standalone solution for in, uh, as a part of a complete 
ammonia value chain. That means as part of the receiving infrastructure, maybe, or uh, end users uh, close to terminals and so on. Are you seeing a sort of regional split as well, I suppose? Um, so, for example, would, would the EU and US be more interested in hydrogen turbines while importing islands like Japan, Korea, Taiwan? Would they have more of an interest in ammonia turbines just because of what they have today and what their existing energy mix is? The, the first indications give you right, uh, because we have announced, for example, in Singapore, our partnership and the development of Jurong port yes. uh, by, uh, as a zero carbon uh, port by means of an ammonia fired 67 megawatt uh, of order of magnitude uh, combined cycle power plant. So that seems to be, uh, uh, seems to be the case. Uh, in the short term, because, you know, in Asia, per definition, uh, they will be net importers. So because uh, and the way to transport hydrogen in the near future will be by means of ammonia. Now, in Europe, in the US, we have, especially in the US, we have a, a, a much bigger um, uh, local part, uh, localized production, collocation of production of, uh, of green hydrogen. So, especially in the US, uh, US are uh, placing themselves as an exporter of green mm. or blue ammonia, carbon-free ammonia in the future. And then we end up with Europe, where Europe is, they are trying, we are trying very hard also in the local uh, production. Uh, you know, the uh, initiatives around the North Sea and the offshore wind initiatives in the southern part of Europe, like Spain or the UK and so on. But definitely there in Europe, we will have the possibility to showcase more because it is certain that Europe will receive also imported hydrogen. So yeah. we see some um, um, mobility or some, some interest on 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 ammonia, uh, especially as an import commodity, mm. and that will create some demand uh, on 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 power. But please be reminded that in Europe, because we have the overcapacity and uh, we have the priority on the renewables, on the PV and offshore wind, yep. the power uh, use of hydrogen or green fuels or ammonia and gas turbines and so on will come most probably a bit later than mm. in the US uh, market. So we expect that to happen in the mid 30s and so on. So we we will have time to see, uh, and of course, to enable that, you we will need to have um, uh, very efficient ammonia cracking technologies, which will be the game changer for the further uh, future implementation yep. of uh, ammonia as a carrier, right? So we never talk, or it's rarely talked about the plumbing uh, of the hydrogen economy and compression isn't a sexy topic in decarbonisation, so it's talked about less. Uh, should it be oh, yeah. more? <laughs> uh, I'm very happy you ask because, you know, uh, uh, one of our powerful segments is the compressor part of Mitsubishi. So we are uh, placing ourselves uh, also in the compressor technology, which as we move to larger uh, um, uh, capa uh, capacities of hydrogen, 
and even uh, in view of the future plans for hydrogen applications or for hydrogen pipelines, mm. we will use much bigger compressors than the reciprocating ones that uh, are dominating the market so far. So MHI is doing uh, its homework and uh, we are bringing now our expertise in large scale compressors uh, also for hydrogen. And I think that uh, uh, together with the development of the, the uh, hydrogen infrastructure and the large scale compressors, we will have uh, that type of uh, machinery also uh, in our portfolio. We, we have made announcements to that extent al already for mm. that as well. So I'm always looking towards uh, interconnections and storage at the moment, cause, simply because they're not talked about uh, very much. I know that uh, also you're involved in uh, ammonia cracking as well. How is that proceeding? I think I mentioned before that uh, it's the essential part. I mean, it's it will be the game changer uh, on the technology in order to reduce the energy penalty. Uh, we have uh, uh, we are we are participating in a number of uh, demonstration projects in Japan. Uh, I think uh, the important part of the of the cracking technology it's not just the catalytic process; it's the integration into uh, into the power cycle and the uh, most efficient use of heat, for example, that is needed for cracking from a power cycle and so on. Yeah. Uh, we will come out uh, uh, before the end of the decade with a uh, new generation of uh, innovative cracking technologies, I think. Yeah, trying to raise the efficiency of the process. As things stand today, what should people be thinking about as a cost, as a percentage of the ship product for the cracking element? Uh, I can answer indirectly in uh, by saying much lower than the compressed and the liquefied energy penalty. Uh, <laughs> I, I would be dreaming to have it in a single digit percentage, uh, which is uh, not the case for the time being. But uh, uh, we uh, aim to bring in a single digit the whole you know, energy penalty of uh, of the ammonia use uh, in um, in the in terms of uh, fuel uh, heating value, right? Yes. So that we will have an energy penalty less than ten percent. It's um, it's very ambitious, but uh, we will not be very far from there. It is ambitious. I mean, I'm thinking at the moment that we're sitting around sort of 18 to 20 percent. Yeah. 15 will be a, a nice benchmark to compare with you. Uh, mm. But uh, I, I would uh, I would like to, 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 to go a little bit lower. I think it's uh, reasonable to, to believe that we can achieve. Uh, I think the state of the art in a, uh, will be in the next generation around uh, bit less lower than 15 percent and it's a question of optimization and um, let's uh, let's hope uh, let's hope that we will do it but um, equal to that i think we have to increase the the direct ammonia use manuel thanks very much for making making yourself available today i'm going to release you um, and argus hydrogen and future fuels will be back thank you very much team uh, enjoyed talking to you.